Welcome back, everyone, and thank you for joining us for today's podcast from Dublin First Baptist Church in Dublin, North Carolina. We hope you'll be encouraged today as you listen to our message. For more information, please visit our website at www.dublinfbc.org. That's www.dublinfbc.org. Now let's join the congregation of Dublin First Baptist as we listen to the preaching of God's Word. Let's turn back to Acts chapter 18, would you? Um, I don't know about you, but like it's been good for me as we've been going through Acts um, to kind of see like the formation of these churches that we read about in other uh, New Testament books. Uh, today in Corinth, like we're, we're reading about uh, how the church of Corinth was founded, you know, where we got first and second Corinthians. A couple weeks ago, we talked about Paul and Silas and Timothy planned the church at Thessalonica, where the Thessalonians uh, epistles were given. Uh, first missionary journey, one of the first churches that Paul uh, and Barnabas planted was in Galatia. And that's kind of cool. In this passage of scripture that we read earlier and that we'll study together now, we find Paul and Silas and Timothy. They're still on their second missionary journey. Um, they head to the prominent city of Corinth, uh, coming out of Athens. Uh, it's not far from Athens, but it, it is not a famous intellectual uh, center like Athens. Corinth was the most important, uh, the most successful economic city of that day. Corinth had two seaports, uh, and so it was a bustling city of commerce. Corinth was also home to a large temple for the worship of the goddess Aphrodite, and that resulted in the city of Corinth being known worldwide for its rampant prostitution, rampant immorality. Sounds like an ideal place for uh, the gospel of Jesus Christ to go to, right? And um, before we study this passage verse by verse, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we come to your word now. Uh, we're thankful, so thankful as we go through the book of Acts here to see how the very first Christians, um, your early church, how they engaged in the Great Commission you gave them and you've given us. As followers of Jesus, I pray that we would learn um, to do the things that they did that worked well. Um, the things that didn't, Lord, we would learn from their mistakes God, more than anything, I pray we'd have the passion they had for making disciples of Jesus Christ, for sharing the gospel. God, you give us so many opportunities every week. So often we might not be aware of them. Um, even times, Lord, we might shy back from them for fear or some other reason. God, please help us to be bold like we see Paul and Silas and Timothy being, not just here, but in these other passages we've studied. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So in verses 1 through 6, we see the evangelization of Corinth in the first three verses of chapter 18. It describes Paul leaving Athens, and he arrives in Corinth, where he's introduced to a married couple named Priscilla and Aquila. They would end up being faithful co-laborers with Paul in ministry. And verse 2 describes Aquila as a Jew. He was born in Pontus, but he had come to the city of Corinth from Italy along with his wife Priscilla. It seems that the Roman emperor Claudius, he had evicted all of the Jews from Rome. And that's the reason that Aquila...
Aquila and Priscilla had now made their home in Corinth. There's nothing in verses 1 through 3 that uh, leads us to believe that Aquila and Priscilla were already Christians when they first met Paul. Uh, Nowhere in Scripture do we have their testimony uh, of turning to faith in Jesus Christ, but we know later on they were very active in the church. They were leaders in the church at Ephesus. So uh, at some point, they must have heard the gospel of Jesus. They must have gotten saved. I would guess here in their early interactions with the apostle Paul. Uh, Aquila and Priscilla, it tells us they had something in common with Paul. According to verse 3, it says they were of the same craft. Paul, Aquila, and Priscilla, they were all tent makers by trade. Uh, and Paul stayed in their home here, there in Corinth, and, uh, and they all worked together. Uh, we know from God's word that at certain times on his missionary trips, Paul would um, use this skill. He would financially support his mission endeavors uh, by, by making tents. Uh, even today, uh, that term tent maker, it's used in Christian missions to describe a missionary who does go to the mission field to share the gospel, but who uh, has uh, some position as in a job or in some industry to support themselves, but to also gain contacts with the local people. And then verse 4 tells us that Paul continued to do what he did every time he went to a new city uh, on his mission trips. It says he reasoned, verse 4 says he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath, and he persuaded the Jews and the Greeks. We don't know how long specifically Paul did this in Corinth, but according to verse 5, finally Silas and Timothy, they rejoined Paul there in Corinth on this mission. Uh, from some of Paul's later epistles like Philippians and First and Second Thessalonians, we know that um, Silas has been up in Philippi and um, Timothy was in Thessalonica. They never joined Paul in Athens. Um, after that whole situation in Berea, um, Paul sent Silas up to, up to Philippi and Timothy to Thessalonica. Now they rejoin him here according to verse 5. And we know that Paul was preaching the gospel powerfully in the synagogue uh, at Corinth. We can go to 1 Corinthians 2, 2, and Paul writes this, For I determined to know nothing among you uh, except Jesus Christ and him crucified. That was Paul's message uh, when he was preaching in the synagogue at, at Corinth. Jesus that was it. He preached Jesus, that Jesus saves. That was Paul's message. That's the gospel message that gives life and that transforms lives. That's the gospel message that you and I are to share. We're to tell others that Jesus saves. And that's what Silas and Timothy find Paul doing at the end of verse 5. Uh, maybe Paul is encouraged by them rejoining him, returning to help him. Uh, he might be encouraged by the financial uh, love offering gift that the Philippian church had sent their way. Uh, with Silas, but verse 5 says that Paul was pressed in spirit. If you underline your Bible or want to make a note, uh, I want you to underline that. Pressed in spirit. Paul was pressed in spirit, and he testified to the Jews that Jesus is the Christ, that Jesus is the Messiah. And why I want to emphasize that phrase, pressed in spirit, is because it's powerful. In the Greek, it's soon echo. It literally means to be seized. Paul was seized, and he testified to the Jews that Jesus is the Christ. Are you seized by the gospel of Jesus Christ? I mean, if you're a Christian, you are. Uh, whenever that was, whenever you trusted Christ the Savior, that moment, uh, the Holy Spirit seized you, and you became God's. You became his forever. But what I mean is, are you seized by the gospel like Paul is here so that you do what Paul does here? Now, we call the gospel the good news. That's where we get our English word for evangelization. 
Are you so seized by the gospel of Jesus Christ that saved you and that transformed your life that you boldly, just like Paul here, you boldly share the gospel with others? The great 19th century Baptist pastor, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, he once said this, if sinners will be damned, well, at least let them leap to hell over our bodies. And if they will perish, then let them perish with our arms wrapped about their knees, imploring them to stay. And if hell must be filled, then let it be filled with the teeth of our exertions. Let no one go to hell unwarned or unprayed for. Amen? That's how we're to be as a church. We just saying, oh, church, arise. That's what we are to arise to, sharing the gospel boldly like that. Spurgeon also said this, every Christian, he's either a missionary or he's an imposter. Every single Christian, you have to make a choice there. A Christian has been seized by the gospel of Jesus Christ, just like Paul is here, pressed in spirit. He was seized. A Christian, he or she can't help but look for and then seize opportunities to share the gospel with others, to tell others, turn to Jesus. Jesus saves. And while Paul, he powerfully and he faithfully, it says, reasoned with and persuaded and testified of the gospel to the Corinthian Jews and Greeks that were in the synagogue there, in verse 6, it lets us know about the results of Paul's evangelization here in Corinth, at least to this point. In the King James Version there, in verse 6, it says, and when they opposed themselves. Now, if you have a more modern English translation, it might say when they opposed Paul. I like the King James translation here. When so Please understand this. When somebody rejects the gospel of Jesus Christ, that is exactly what they're doing. They are opposing themselves. That's what Paul said back in Acts 13, 46, when he was uh, on his first mission trip in Antioch, and he was preaching in the synagogue there. And when those Jewish people rejected the gospel, Paul said this, it was necessary that the word of God would be first spoken to you, but seeing that you put it from you, seeing that you judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, lo, we turn to the Gentiles. When people put the word of God from them, I want you to picture like a little kid who don't like what was set before him at the dinner table. And he's like, meh. That's what it says they did there. They put the word of God from them. When people do that, when people reject the gospel and they judge themselves unworthy of eternal life, they're not opposing Jesus. They're not uh, even opposing you and I sharing Jesus with them as much as they are opposing themselves. It's like somebody going to the doctor who's terribly sick, maybe even with a terminal illness, and then the doctor uh, gives them some treatment. He might prescribe something, and they refuse to take it. They're opposing themselves. And then here in verse 6, Paul responds to their rejection of the gospel, even to the point of blasphemy, it says. He responds a lot like he did back in Antioch on that first mission trip. He says he shakes off his clothing, a symbolic gesture. Like, look, I've given you the truth over and over. Every Sabbath I've been here boldly declaring the gospel. You've rejected it. When he's shaking off his clothing, he say, not even a dust particle, not even a molecule here am I guilty of. It's all fine. It's all your blood be on your own heads. I am clean. From here on out, I'm going to go to the Gentiles. Now, Paul is going to continue his method of always going to a synagogue as he goes to other cities, but at least here in Corinth, at least here in his ministry there, he's now turning to the Gentiles as his focus in ministry. And it's because of that we see uh, the encouragement in Corinth in verses 7 through 11. Paul leaves the synagogue. He doesn't go too far, according to verse 7. It says he went and he stayed in the house of a man named Justice, whose house was joined hard to the synagogue, like right next door, literally attached to it. And then verse 8, uh, it tells us that a man named Crispus, 
And this guy's important. He was a chief ruler in that synagogue. Crispus trusts in Jesus as a Savior, along with all of his family. And then it says, many of the Corinthians hearing, they believed, and they were baptized. And that had to be a source of great encouragement for Paul and the rest of this mission team. Uh, let me throw one more Charles Spurgeon quote your way. It says, to be a soul winner, that is the happiest thing in the world because with every soul that you bring to Jesus Christ, you seem to get a little new foretaste of heaven right here on earth. I'd say amen to that. That's been my experience. But an even greater source of encouragement comes Paul's way in verses 9 and 10. Paul gets a message directly from the Lord Jesus. Let's read that. Verse 9. Then spake the Lord to Paul, and they might be in red letters in your Bible, in the night by a vision. Jesus says, Be not afraid, but speak, and hold not thy peace. For I am with thee, and no man shall set on thee to hurt thee, for I have much people in this city. So Jesus himself tells Paul here, Don't be afraid. Paul, don't keep silent. Keep doing what you're doing. Keep boldly declaring the gospel. And then in verse 10, would you listen to the words of Jesus to Paul, but also to you and I here this morning, Christian? What does he say? For I am with you. For I am with you. Can anything be more encouraging to the Christian than that? To, to know that the almighty sovereign of the universe is with you, his Holy Spirit indwelling you, to never leave you, to never forsake you. That's what Jesus said in his and, you know, most famous, probably great commission passage, Matthew 28, 18 to 20, as you are going, make disciples, and it wraps up with Christ's promise here. Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age, to the end of the world. I am with you. Can I say a little differently? I am is with you. And the mission is a go, but, but, but we don't go alone. <laughs> I am with you. And then Jesus tells Paul here, no man shall set on thee to hurt thee. Again, that has to be an additional uh, source of great encouragement to Paul to keep on going in his ministry here in Corinth. Uh, if we think about it from the very first mission trip all the way to this point right here, Paul and his mission teammates, um, they've experienced hurt. They've been subjected to mob violence repeatedly. They've received death threats. They've been beaten. Uh, they've been imprisoned. Most of the time, the duration of their mission trip in each particular city, it's been pretty short. And as a result, Jesus says, Paul, I am with you. No man shall set on thee to hurt thee. And then the Lord tells Paul, hey, here's why you can believe all of these things. Everything Jesus is saying here, Jesus tells Paul, I have much people in this city, Paul. That's why you can believe everything I've just said, everything I've just promised you. I have much people in this city. What do you think Paul thought? Maybe, Lord. Not so far. There is Aquila and Priscilla, and there's Justice and Crispus in his house, and the many Corinthians who were believed and were baptized of verse 8. But Jesus says to Paul here, I have much people here in the city of Corinth. Listen, that final word of encouragement for Paul um, it ought to be a source of encouragement for every one of us here this morning to keep on sharing the gospel. Even if we don't see immediate fruit right away, even if when we do, somebody rejects it, just like the Jews did in that synagogue, we're to continue to boldly tell others that Jesus saves because God has much people right here where we are. And God's sovereignty and salvation and God's... Um, indisputable omniscience, 
the Lord knows everyone who's going to come to trust him as Savior. He even knows when, when they're going to do it. Uh, and in his per- perfect wisdom, I don't know why he's done this, but he has decided to use you and I to share the gospel with them, to bring them to Christ. That can only happen if we do that, if we share the gospel. Uh, that's such an encouragement for me because not only is the mission a go, that means the mission's already won. I mean, it is. Those who are Christ's, they will come to Christ. I just get to be a part. It's simply our role to be faithful to God and testifying of Jesus to others. It's our role to be so seized by the gospel that saved us that God uses us and he uses our witness to bring others to trust in Jesus as their Savior. Christian, be bold in sharing Christ, would you? Why are we not bold? Why is there a lack of boldness sometimes? I think we, sometimes we make it more difficult than it needs to be. A lot of times I hear like, well, I just, I, don't, I didn't know what to say in that situation. And so we develop systems and structures, you know, like the Romans Road or, or I love the three circles that we use here. You know, that's kind of a newer way. And in fact, if you want to use that, we've got a little QR code out there on the hall and just snap a picture. That's super easy way. Uh, a lot like Paul did last week in Athens to share the gospel with somebody who has like almost no Bible knowledge. Um, there's other, you know, evangelism explosion over the last couple of decades. There's been so many tools that we can use, and they're good tools, uh, great things to build off of anyway, systems and structures of how we can share the gospel with someone. But, but don't be restricted by those. I mean, you're not selling a car to somebody. Let it be real. What do you need to communicate to them? How you got saved, that Jesus saves, that God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to come and live among us and die for our sins. And I paid the penalty that was due, me and you. And then God rose him from the grave. That's the gospel. It's that simple. Don't make it harder. I do think sometimes we might use that as an excuse. And the real reason is because we're afraid to boldly say what the gospel really says, that they need to repent and believe. I mean, we, oh, I don't want to be judgmental. or I don't want to be condemnational. Well, don't be. But God's word be, it needs to be. Aren't you glad that somebody shared that judgmental and condemnational word with you that you need to repent and that you need to believe? You wouldn't have come to Christ. You wouldn't have eternal life. You wouldn't have the Holy Spirit indwelling you if they hadn't. Now, don't do it in a judgmental or condemnational way. Just speak the truth of God's word. I remember one time a couple years ago, I was sharing God's word with somebody who knew God's, he knew the gospel. He'd been raised in a Christian home, been struggling his whole life. I told him, you know, based on how he was living and what he was doing, I, I didn't know if he was saved. And he said, oh, I'm not. I said, are you happy right now? Because, I mean, in the hour I was speaking with him, I could tell he wasn't. He wasn't trying to be condemnational. And he told me, thank you for shooting straight with me. He didn't receive Christ the Savior that day. It was a couple weeks later. And I didn't lead him to the Lord, but I, I pray that God used what I said. Something so simple. Just out of love for him, are you happy right now? Is this how you want life to go? And he said, no, it's not good. Don't make it harder than it needs to be. We can ascertain here that Paul and the others, they must have been encouraged by all of this because verse 11 tells us that they stayed here in Corinth for quite a long time, a year and six months, and they taught the word of God among them. Now, Satan doesn't want any of that happening. He don't want people getting saved. He doesn't want churches getting planted. 
He doesn't want Christians growing as disciples of Jesus. So, so this is a prime target for the devil. And we learn in verses 12 and 13 that the Jews here in Corinth, they once again plot against Paul and they turn to the Roman authorities in an effort to get all this to stop. And this has happened before, right? Like in every city. <laughs> but also there's always been a way of escape. And we learn of the escape in Corinth in verses 12 to 17. Uh, the accusation that was made against Paul and the mission team is, is in verses 12 and 13. It says the Jews in Corinth, they made an insurrection with one accord against Paul, and they bring Paul before the judgment seat of the Roman proconsul for that region, a man named Gallio. <laughs> man named Gallio. And their accusation was this. This guy Paul here, he persuades men to worship God contrary to the law. Now, to really understand what's going on here, we, we have to kind of consider some cultural things and some legal things. Uh, the Roman Empire only recognized certain religions in the peoples that they conquered. Uh, Judaism was one of them, uh, but Christianity was not. It was too new in their minds. So, so these Jews brought Paul before Gallio, and they accused Paul of worshiping uh, a God and converting people to an illegal, uh, illicit religion that's not approved by the state. In verse 14, it tells us that Paul, he's itching to begin a defense here, but he can't even speak yet because before uh, he could, the Roman proconsul Gallio, he jumps in and in verses 14 and 15, he basically tells the accusing Jews, your accusation doesn't hold any water. He says, if it were a matter of wrong, if Paul had done something wrong, if he broke the law, if it was a matter of wicked lewdness, O ye Jews, well, reason would be that I should bear with you and hear your case and come up with a judgment. But Gallio says, this is a question of words and names and of your law, of your religion. So look ye to it. Leave me alone with this. Look ye to it. I'm not going to be a judge of any of these matters. What is pretty clear here is something that I always try to stress. It's important that we understand the connection between Judaism and Christianity. There is a connection there. Basically, Gallio here, he's saying that Christianity is not some new illegal or illicit religion. He sees it. He sees it as an offshoot of Judaism and thus covered under Judaism as an approved Roman Empire religion. Of course, the Jews don't see it that way at all. Uh, and Gallio, Gallio's incorrect in one regard, too. Christianity is not some new religion. And Christianity is not an offshoot of Judaism. Christianity is the same religion from Genesis to Revelation. Amen? I mean, the very first gospel is in Genesis chapter 3, uh, where, where God promises Adam and Eve that they will have a descendant. The Messiah is promised there. He will bruise Satan's head while Satan will bruise his heel. Abraham is promised a Messiah. That in, in you, Abraham, all the nations of the earth will be blessed it's not some new religion. If anyone created a new religion, it was the Jews who rejected Jesus as their Messiah. They're the ones who created a new religion. In Ephesians 4, 5 through 6, God has Paul tell us this. There's one Lord. There's one faith. There's one baptism. There's one God and Father of all who is above all and through all. And he's in everyone who trusts in Christ the Savior. Jesus was promised and the gospel is first mentioned way back in Genesis 3, as I said earlier. And speaking of Jesus in 2 Timothy 1.9, Paul writes this, God has saved us and he's called us to a holy calling, uh, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began. 
Christianity. That's the religion of the Bible. Those who rejected the gospel, these Jews here, their plan to interrupt the gospel, their plan to disrupt this mission team, it failed. In verses 16 to 17, Gallio orders the accusers to leave. There's some Greeks who are there witnessing this whole thing and um, did not like the uproar that they had caused. It says they took one of the accusers, a, a man named Sosthenes, and they beat him. Here he's listed as the chief ruler of the synagogue, so he must have been the one who replaced Crispus after he got saved. Um, the interesting thing is that in 1 Corinthians 1, 1, Paul calls Sosthenes our brother in Christ. So that must mean at some point even Sosthenes came to Christ as well. Listen, when we study the book of Acts together, we study the gospel. We study the good news that Jesus saves. And so I must always call for a response to anyone who might be here um, who, who has never trusted in Jesus as Savior. Uh, if you've never in prayer confessed your sins to God and told him that you're trusting in who Jesus is and what he has done for you to forgive your sins and to give you eternal life, won't you do that right now? E even as I'm talking, in prayer to God, do that. Uh, be, be seized by the gospel this morning. And Christian, you who have done that, um, are you seized by the gospel? As I said earlier, you, you were when you first trusted in Christ as Savior. Literally, that's what the Holy Spirit did. He grabbed you. Uh, God's word says he took you out of the kingdom of darkness and he planted you into the kingdom of God's dear son. But are you seized by the gospel in the sense that has there been anything that has been pulling you away lately? Something or someone who has been trying to seize your love for and your devotion to Jesus Christ. There's nothing that is more beautiful to see. There's nothing that's more glorifying to God than a follower of Christ who is completely seized by the gospel. And being seized by the gospel will give you victory over temptation and sin. Being seized by the gospel will be a motivating force, just like it was here for Paul and this mission team to share Jesus with, with others. Um, is there someone here this morning who would who would tell God this, yeah, I want to live like that. That's the Christian life I want to live. Other things have been pulling on me, but I want to live as a follower of Jesus who is completely seized by the gospel. Lord, help me to recognize, help me, help me to grab every single opportunity that you give me every day to point others to Jesus, just like Paul did here. Lord, pull me close this morning because I'm tired of other things pulling on me. I'm surrendering everything to you right now. As Tommy comes and leads us in a time to respond to God's word, if the Holy Spirit has used God's word to seize you this morning, let go. Surrender all. Go to him.